hopefully if you are part of this community, and I realize some are still trying to figure out what does it even mean to be in church community, but that's the question we've been asking is what do you really want to see God do uh, with and in and through this community? It's been encouraging uh, this series that we've been walking through just called Dear Genesis. We've been looking at seven letters that Jesus wrote to seven different churches. Now, one of the things that I think is universal to probably all of us here is no one likes being told that what they are doing is wrong, right? No one likes being told that, hey, you need to change. No one likes being told that, hey, you need to grow up or that you need to mature. The culture that we actually live in espouses to this idea that if you disagree with someone, whether it's disagree with maybe choices that they're making or disagree with uh, things that they might be believing or things that they're not believing, our culture would tell us uh, it would be unloving to confront them. It would be unloving uh, to challenge them on what they think or what they believe. I think the equation of what love looks like in our culture is love equals tolerance. That the idea is loving people in our culture is just let them do whatever they want, let them believe whatever they want, uh, no matter what the cost or the consequence. So I think we see this in culture, but I have also see that this is beginning to permeate within the church as well. But as we've been walking through each of these letters that Jesus has written to these churches in Revelation, he has a very different idea of what love actually is, what the equation for love would be. His equation would be not love equals tolerance, but love equals truth. Week after week that we've been looking at these letters, we see Jesus loving people through speaking truth in loving ways. Week after week, we've just seen Jesus loves people by speaking truth in loving ways. He loved the church enough to tell the church, hey, this is where you're missing it or this is where you need to grow, or this is where you need to mature. Or he loved people enough to tell them, this is where you need to repent from what you're doing and begin doing this. Imagine if you went to a doctor, and you were just feeling kind of off, but you couldn't really articulate why you were feeling off. And so you went to the doctor, and the doctor did their full exam. And the doctor came back to you and said, hey, you know, you're fine. Everything is good. And you're like, really? There's no issues? And the doctor kind of hesitates. He's like, yeah, there's no issues here. And so you leave the doctor's office, but a couple weeks go by and you're starting to think to yourself, man, I just feel off. I can't really articulate, but I just feel off. I'm going to go visit another doctor. So you go to another doctor and this doctor does their exam and he comes back to you and says, listen, I need to tell you that you actually have cancer. I know that's hard to hear, but I just, why you're feeling off is you're sick. You're very sick. You have cancer. How many would go back to the other doctor and just ask them the simple question, why didn't you tell me? And imagine if the doctor's response was, well, because I loved you and I didn't want to hurt you. I knew it would be hard to hear that you were sick with cancer and I just, I wanted to love you. So I just, I didn't want to give you hard things to hear, hard things to deal with. If that doctor actually did that, how many of you would be like, well, gosh, thanks for loving me so much. I appreciate how tender-hearted, compassionate you are towards me, not to tell me something hard to hear. In that example, I think we understand that that would be utterly unloving to that person. Love is not found in telling people what they want to hear, which is all is well. 
Love is seen in speaking truth to people in loving ways. And this is what Jesus does for each of these churches. Specifically, what Jesus will do for this church in a church called Thyatira. This is the fourth letter that we're looking at. And what's interesting about Thyatira and all of these churches, just to put it on a map, is in modern-day Turkey. And the church specifically in Thyatira, it is the least known, least remarkable, and least important of these seven cities. It is not a cultural icon like some of these other churches where where the cities that they live in. But yet this church that is least known and least remarkable receives the longest letter from Jesus receives the longest letter from Jesus expressing, expressing some deep concern for what's happening within their church. Now, as we've done week after week in this series, I want to invite all of us to stand as we're going to read this letter that Jesus wrote to the church in Thyatira. So if you would stand. We've got our two readers this morning, and they're going to be reading Revelation chapter 2, verse 18 through 29. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. I know all the things you do. I have seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. And I can see your constant improvement in all these things. But I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat foods offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and and intentions of every person. And I will give to each of you whatever you deserve. But I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed this false teaching. Deeper truths, as they call them, depths of Satan actually. I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. To all you who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority I received from my Father, and I will also give them the morning star. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Before you sit down, um, whatever heaviness you feel in hearing that letter of, gosh, that's a hard letter. So how that might feel heavy to us, amplify that maybe a hundredfold over and imagine what it would be like for this church 2,000 years ago to hear that letter from Jesus for them. Brent and Charlotte, thank you. Go ahead and take a seat. One of the things that I love that Jesus does uh, immediately in this letter is he wants them not to have any confusion as to who he is. And so he immediately identifies himself as the son of God. And see why that's important in Thyatira, they had a patron God 
that they worshipped uh, in the city, and the god that they worshipped was Apollo. If you're not familiar with Apollo, Apollo is known as the son of Zeus. And so people worship the son of God being Apollo uh, in that culture, in that community. And so Jesus wants this church to know, have no confusion. No, no, I am the one true and only son of God, not Apollos, but me. Apollos is just this false mythological deity that just doesn't know you and doesn't care about you. But I am the one true son of God who knows about you, all of who you are, and I care about you, and I love you, and I'm writing you a personal letter. And Jesus identifies himself as the son of God, but then he says, my eyes are like flames of fire. When Jesus identifies, I want you to know that I see all things. There is nothing that I do not see. I see absolutely everything. I know everything that is happening with you and around you. I know your thoughts and your intentions and your motivations. There is nothing that I do not see. And when it says his eyes are filled with flames of fire, that talks about his righteous anger, his righteous indignation for how this church is being deceived. Because I care about you and I love you, I have a righteous anger for how you are currently being led astray. And then this might seem like an odd reference, but he says, my feet are polished like bronze. Now to us, that's like, well, that's odd. But to them, they would understand completely how Jesus is trying to connect who he is to the culture and the context that they live in because they were known, they were infamous for their bronze. They were famous around that area for how they would make and shape and cultivate and sell, brown, uh, sell bronze. And so Jesus would want them to know, and as he's identifying feet polished like bronze, no, true strength, true splendor doesn't come from what you sell and what you are famous for. True strength and true splendor actually comes from me, from Jesus alone. Now, again, I've already mentioned this, but love doesn't equal tolerance. Love equals truth, specifically truth spoken in loving ways. Now, when we hear that phrase, love equals truth, just you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of us, when we even hear that, we assume that truth automatically means challenge? That if I'm going to love you in truth, that means I'm going to challenge you. I have something to either correct you on or challenge you on. Now, clearly, uh, there is an aspect of loving people in truth will certainly mean challenge. But how many of you have ever been encouraged by someone? And whatever it was, they were encouraging something that you did, something that you said, something in your character. And you walked away from that person and be like, well, that was unloving. I wish they would stop loving me through encouraging me so much. What I want us to hear is if we are only loving people in truth by challenging people, truth void of encouragement, that is neither loving or even either wholly truthful. Jesus loved in truth through encouragement. He begins by identifying who he is, but he loves them in truth by encouraging them. Verse 19, I know all the things you do. I've seen your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance, and I can see your constant improvement in all of these things. That's pretty encouraging. This church is crushing it in four specific ways in their love, in their faith, in their service, in their perseverance. 
Jesus, the one who knows absolutely everything, he knows all things, he encourages this, this church in not only their love, faith, service, and per- perseverance, but he takes it a step further and he says, but you're actually growing in these things. You've not grown stale or stagnant. These are not things that you used to do, but your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance is better today than it was a day ago. You're growing in these things. And so one of the things I don't want us to forget is this truth. Our growing matters to God. Not just us as individuals, but us as people, as a community. Our growing, it matters to God. Uh, Last Sunday, my uh, favorite daughter uh, turned 14. She's my only daughter for those of you judging, like, how can you play favorites? Um, She turned 14 last Sunday. And one of the things that I love about my daughter is how she loves God. I love how she loves people. And I love how she's just growing in character that is really consistent with Christ. But can you imagine if Riley, who's now 14, stopped growing at, say, age 7? That she just stopped growing. There was no mental or emotional or spiritual growth. How many of you would counsel me as a dad to say, hey, Michael, that's okay. She's 14, but yet she acts like a seven-year-old. It's not a big deal that she's not growing. I think all of us would say, Michael, what is going on? You have a, a child, who's a young woman who's now 14, who's still acting like a child. Why isn't she growing? I think if we get it at that level, how much more so is it important for you and I, in the eyes of God, to say that we are growing? Now, this might seem like a very simple, a very basic question, but I just, I'd have to ask, are you growing? Like, are you growing today? Do you look different today than you did a year ago? Like, if you were to look back at the last 365 days, can you say in all integrity, I look a little bit more like Christ and his heart and his character and his values? I look more like Christ today than I did 365 days ago. And I'm not saying that you've arrived, but can you say just in integrity, but yes, I am growing. Our growing, it matters to God. Now, I realize that we all have different ways that we grow, different ways that we might learn, like learning styles, but I believe this principle is universal for all of us, and it's this, growing comes by giving. Growing comes by giving. What I mean by that is passing along what you've learned will not only solidify what you've actually learned, but it will stir in you a desire to actually grow some more, to learn even more. Maybe another way to simply say this is uh, begin discipling someone. If you really want to see growth in your friendship with God, in your walk with God, begin discipling someone else. Those growing the most in my life are those that are pouring out the most. Begin helping someone else grow in Christ-likeness, and guess what? It's going to help you grow in Christ-likeness as well. So I don't want us to neglect or forget that our growing, it matters to God. It is a big deal. It's the first thing that Jesus wants to love them in truth by encouraging them. You're growing. I see it. It matters to me. But as we heard in this letter, there are things that can hinder our growth. There's things that can happen in our life that would stunt or just get in the way of us growing more. Now, one would think, gosh, this church is crushing it. 
loving people and faith and service, good works, good deeds, and they're enduring through hardship, it would be easy to make the assumption that they are somehow immune to stumbling. But as I've sat with this church over the past few weeks, one of the things that I'm learning afresh is this, great strengths do not negate the possibility for even greater weaknesses. That you can have so many ways, so many areas where you are growing, where you're crushing it, where God would say, I see your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance, your endurance, but great strengths does not negate the possibility for even greater weaknesses. It says in verse 20, but I have this complaint against you. You're permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. There's a reason that in our culture, no one names their child Jezebel. It is not like a term of endearment. If you were to call someone, hey, Jezebel, I promise you it will not go well for you. Jezebel is an Old Testament queen. She was married to what is known as the most evil, wicked queen, uh, king in Israel's history. His name was King Ahab. And together, those two, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, are just known as the most evil king and queen that led uh, the nation of Israel into horrific, horrific idolatry and just worship of false gods, namely the god Baal. So this is the personification of evil. So when Jesus is saying there is a Jezebel in your midst, this is not a compliment. This is not encouraging. This is Jesus. This is a really big deal. There's someone in your community who is now leading people to gross idolatry, specifically sexual sin and idolatry. And so I've been asking the question, how is it possible that a church that is growing in love and faith and service and perseverance could allow something like this to happen? Like, wasn't there somebody in the church in Thyatira that just would stand up and say, hey, sit down. Like, what you're saying is wrong. Like, what you are doing is wrong. Like, I see how you were leading people astray. Wasn't there one person who had the courage or the conviction to stand and say, no more of this. You are leading people astray. I'm not going to put up with this. And Jesus says there, there wasn't any as I've been wrestling with that. The note I wrote down in my journal was this, compromise quiets voices quickly. Compromise has a way of quieting our voice very quickly. When's the last time someone asked you how you're doing with the speed limit? Like, when's the last time when someone came and said, hey, how are you doing obeying the speed limit? Like, hey, when you see that sign that says 55, how are you doing at not going above 55? Well, we don't ask each other that question because I don't want you to ask me the same question in return. There is a level of compromise that takes place. If I were to stand before you and say, hey, it's really okay to go over 55. Because there's this unwritten rule that says if you're somewhere between 7 to 10 miles over the speed limit, there's grace, there's mercy, there's forgiveness. How many of you would stand up in this room right now and say, Michael, you're leading people astray. You are wrong. Michael, that is compromising the law. The law says over 55, you're breaking the law. But there's something in us that says, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. 
I mean, there's room. There's room to fudge on the speed limit. I know I'm forever ruining it for you. The next time you see 55, you'll hear someone in the back of your head be like, slow down, slow down. But when there is something that we've deemed it okay to compromise on, and someone's now giving me permission to do that, I'm not going to speak up and say anything. This Jezebel was telling people what they ultimately wanted to hear. And thus, it was really easy to be silent or easy to be quiet on things that you're going to be okay doing. Now, just to give some color to this, in the city of Thyatira, they were well known for their guilds, more so than anyone else. If you're not familiar with a guild, a guild would be like our modern day equivalent of a labor union. But the difference of a guild and a labor union is a guild was an all-encompassing thing. It was your entire life. It was your social life, your relational life, and certainly your economic and your work life. And to be part of a guild, every guild would have their own god or goddess that they would worship. And within each of these guilds, they would have certain festivals and ceremonies to honor and worship these different gods and goddesses in hopes that that god or that goddess would bless their guild, bless the relationships, and bless their work. And so what's happening in the city in Thyatira is the question that people are now wrestling with is, do we participate in these guilds? Because these guilds are worshiping false gods. These guilds are giving themselves over to sexual immorality. So do we participate? Because we know if we participate, we're compromising our character in Christ. I know if I participate in this guild and start doing what everyone else in this guild does, I will compromise what I know matters to Jesus. So do we participate or do we not? Now, if they made the decision not to participate, not only would their social, civic life be ruined, but their economic life would be ruined as well. Because if you were not part of a guild, you couldn't work. If you weren't part of a guild, you couldn't own a business. And so the question of the day was, well, how are we going to survive? How are we going to operate and live in this culture that says if you don't participate, you can't have any, you can't live? And so here's the woman Jezebel who said, it is okay to participate in these things. Why? Because there's freedom in Christ. Jesus knows you need a job. Jesus knows you need to live and operate in the culture that you live in. So it is okay to compromise on certain things because at the end of the day, you need a job. You need to provide for your family. So yes, if you have to worship some idols on the side, that's okay. If some of their festival, fest, festivals, festivities lead towards sexual immorality, it is okay. And so they were being given permission. It is okay to compromise. And here's the issue with compromise. Compromise is very much like a cancer. Unchecked, it will spread, and it will begin to devastate you. Where there is compromise in our life, it will begin to spread to all areas of our life, and it will not just devastate us as people, but it will devastate our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. Now, I don't mean to go uh, on a tangent here, but one of the things that I, I don't know if you're wondering or asking yourself right now, I hope you are, is, well, gosh, how would Genesis ever prevent itself from having a Jezebel rise up where there is just false, wrong teaching and people are being led astray? 
It happened there to a church that was known for love, faith, service, and perseverance. What measures are in place so that that would not become our reality at a very young church like ours? There's four ways that I'll give you that we're safeguarding that not happening here within our community. Number one, everything that is preached from the stage, there are other people who have eyes on what is going to be said before it's ever even said. So I work on messages with the other pastors at the church. And when they're preaching, we do work on it together, not just to help each other, but to make sure a check and balance that nothing that someone is going to say is biblically incorrect or not consistent with the gospel and who Jesus is. A second way where we have some safeguards is there's five elders at this church. And the elders in many ways are serving as guardrails, making sure that what is being said, what is being done is operating in the path of this is consistent with the gospel, consistent with the scriptures. A third, guard, or third way that we're keeping this in check is we're part of a phenomenal church planting network where there's other friends, other pastors that are keeping their eyes on Genesis, making sure that's what's being said and done is consistent with the gospel. Those are three things, and I think those three things are important. But the fourth thing that I think is even more important is all of you. I hope, I hope that if something was ever said that was not true or consistent with who God is and what God is like, I hope that if something was said that was just blatantly wrong, not consistent with the gospel, I hope and I pray that you would have the courage to say, that's wrong. This is wrong. This is absolutely wrong. I'm not talking about our preferences not being met. I'm talking about things that are being taught that would potentially lead people astray to idolatry or sexual sin. Love does not equal tolerance. Love equals truth spoken in encouragement. But as we now also see in what Jesus is doing, love equals truth in the invitation to repent. Now, when you hear the word repent, how many of you immediately, like the first word association that comes to mind is love? When someone tells you, you need to repent, that the first thought you have is, oh, repentance equals love. I don't think most people think of repent and love often in the same sentence. Uh, last year when I was traveling abroad, uh, I was in uh, an airport, international airport, and I was going through one of their shops uh, in the airport just to get some snacks and drink before I got on the plane. And as I boarded the plane, I saw a row of cigarettes. And I was like, wow, I've never seen this before. But on every single package, in the package were these signs, smoking kills, smoking seriously harms you and others around you. Smoking causes fatal lung cancer. Smoking when pregnant, it is really bad for your baby. It was a wall of just cigarettes and every package had a warning of if you buy this box, you will die. If you buy this box and smoke these cigarettes, it is not good for you. When I took that picture, I didn't have the thought in my head of, wow, that is so unloving that they're doing this. I didn't have the thought of like, how cruel, how mean of these marketers to put a warning that is larger than life on these boxes. When I walked out of the airport, I was like, I don't know if they do this in America, but I thought that is phenomenal. 
I'm going to give people as much of a warning of where you're headed, what you're about to do. It will not end well for you. The most loving thing that Jesus could do for the church in Thyatira is invite them to repent from that which is ultimately would destroy their friendship, their relationship with God. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. This to me is such a picture of grace, such a display of love. Jesus is inviting the woman who is leading all of these people astray to actually turn back to him. Now, not everyone is going to want to repent. Not everyone is going to want to turn back to God. But that doesn't stop Jesus from actually inviting people to do the very thing that they need to do more than anything, which is repent and turn towards him. So the invitation from Jesus to this church was repent from the places and areas where you are currently compromising. And so just ask, do you see compromise in your life today? Do you see any area in your life where there might be compromise taking place? And I think when we think of compromise, I would encourage you to think of compromise not in the big things, but in the small things. I promise you there's not one husband who wakes up one day and he's like, yep, today's the day I'm going to commit adultery and ruin my life. It doesn't start in the big things. It starts in the small things. It's just pornography. It's not that big of a deal. You know, it's just a casual, flirtatious relationship. No harm is being done. We're just friends. You know, if you're in a dating or engaged relationship, the compromise starts to say, hey, maybe we should start living together because, you know, we want to be good stewards of the money that God's given us. And it would make so much more sense if we're just living together. And if we really want to see if this relationship has places to grow, it would just absolutely make sense to start living together, playing married before we're actually married. Or if you're in work, the compromise just creeps in slowly. And like, gosh, I see everyone is advancing ahead of me. And I know the reasons that they're advancing ahead of me is because they're cutting corners or they're pushing other people down. And so it just, it creeps in. Gosh, if I really want to advance my name and a career and a financial bottom line, I'm going to need to start making some choices. I know it's compromise, but I need to kind of keep up with where this path and trajectory is going. Do you see anywhere in your life where compromise has become your reality. Because the invitation from Jesus to them, the invitation from Jesus to all of us is repent. Repent from the very thing that will destroy your friendship with God, that will take you away from God. The message to Jezebel and those that were following her was a message of repentance, and they ultimately rejected it. And what that really means is they were saying, Jesus, we don't want you. We don't want relationship with you. We want to do our own thing. And so Jesus makes very clear, if you do not repent, Jezebel and those that are following you, if you do not repent, there will be devastating consequences. Verse 22, 23, I will throw her on a bed of suffering. Strike her children dead. I will give to each of you whatever you deserve. How hard is that? The, greatest, the greater the consequence, the greater the warning. The greater the consequence, the greater the warning. 
Jesus again is inviting repentance to say, it will not go well for you. You will have to give an account for everything that you do. And if you do not look to me and me alone being Jesus, you will have to stand before a righteous and holy God. And the consequences of not looking to me would be a bed of suffering, separation from God forever in a real place called hell. And so Jesus is pleading with this church, men and women who are currently rejecting Jesus and saying, please turn back to me because this is the beauty of the gospel. This is the beauty of what Jesus declares. Those who look to Jesus in faith get what they don't deserve, heaven, because Jesus got what we deserved on the cross. All of us at some point are going to have to stand before God. And Jesus says, if you reject me, you'll have to stand before God on your own with all of your sins, unforgiven, and the consequence of separation from God forever. But Jesus says, this is the beauty of you won't get what you deserve because I took it for you. I went to the cross in your place so that if you would look to me, your sins would be forgiven. You would have peace with God both now and forever, and your new home would be heaven. So just ask as we finish this letter, where are you looking? Have you looked to Christ yet? Because if you haven't, I'd want you to hear the heart of Christ pleading to you to repent, to turn to him, because he doesn't want you to spend eternity separated from his Father. And for those that have turned to Christ, the message is still repent from things that are compromising your character. And he has such an encouraging message. He says, to those that are going to endure, the promise, the reward that I have for you is in verse 28. I will give you the morning star. And the morning star is a reference to Christ himself. Our reward is Christ. Christ.